Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and we have a lot to discuss this morning. Joining us in the studio is our special guest, Matu Bush. Matu is the Deputy Director of the Health Transformation Lab at RMIT, a lab which designs care with a culture of innovation and creativity. He's also founded a social networking platform called One Good Street to encourage neighbour-initiated care for older residents at risk of social isolation and loneliness. We've got a lot to ask him about. But also on the panel this morning, we have Trainer Wills, our trusty medical student. Yes, she's back from a bit of a hiatus for study and life, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> TW is going to give us an update on the Royal Commission into Mental Health. And, of course, Panel Beta, the left-field thinker of radiotherapy. This year, Panel Beta has been addressing self-help as it intersects and overlaps with healthcare. He's rounding up the year looking at New Year's resolution as a concept of self-help. Hmm. So let's get this show on the road, starting with the news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Let's say g'day to Matu first because you're our special guest this morning. G'day Matu. G'day guys. Awesome to be here. Did you have to come from, I always ask this, I don't know why, did you come from a long way away? Not at all, just around the corner, uh, about five minutes, and uh, the roadworks, Nicholson Street is always changing. Yeah. The landscape is always changing. So uh, every time I come to Triple R, I get to see the new adventures of Nicholson Street. It's nice, because you know, whether you come from near or far, you get special kudos. If you come from a long way away, we say, oh, what a great effort making it all the way over here, thank you so much. And if you come from nearby, we go, oh, you're part of the local community, <laughs> it's so great to have you here. Trainer Wheels. Good morning. Where have you, what have you been doing? We haven't seen you for four months. Yeah, I've been studying and looking after my little family. That's the bit about mm. life. Mm -hmm. And um, where are you up to in the study? Just remind us. I've just finished third year now. <sighs> so I took a year off. But now I've come back and I've finished third year. And it's five-year course or four? Four. four. Yeah, oh, so you're 75% of the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and at the end of next year, there's no training wheels anyway. It's just I wheels. I know, maybe tricycle. Or tricycle. Like yeah. And panel beta. Hey, doodle, hey, everyone. Hey, I, you know, we were, you know, this is totally unrelated, but we were meant to go on a fishing trip with the Einstein and GoGo crew yesterday, and I had this beautiful introduction where Anne Panelbeater, the skipper of radiotherapy, with all of these, no. um, um, you know, uh, um, Gilligan's Island references, and I had to dump it at the last minute and give you the left field have thinker to, of radiotherapy instead. Have to keep it up your sleeve. Because yeah. you, oh, you sort of got to skip a field to you. Oh, skipper. It's the beard. It's the beard. Oh, yeah, more, sure. You look more like a Gilligan. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And I was looking forward to it, but the wind got the better of us, apparently. It did. It was as rough as Gilligan's Island when they crashed out there. Yeah. We would have ended up on a little island. We yeah. would have been there for years. Yeah. People would have said, whatever happened to Einstein and Go-Go and Radiotherapy? <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, this is, this. you know, on Radiotherapy, we have sort of essentially four crews that rotate through. And this is our last show, this crew's last show for this year. Um, the final, final, final last show is next week. Final show for the decade. 
Oh, for my the decade. God. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm tuning in. I'm tuning in. I'll be in Sydney, but I'll be tuning in anyway. We're going to do a lot of uh, looking back, looking forward type stuff. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> hey, uh, we better kick um, the show off with the news. And trainer wheels, you have been combing the news with a fine tooth comb, the sort that gets nits out of your hair, mm-hmm. to see the latest things. What did you come up with? Oh, I haven't had to deal with nits yet, thankfully. You will. Uh, yes. Um, and I do recall having them as a child myself. Actually, it's not fun. Okay, so I was looking at the interim report of the Royal Commission into Mental Health. So I'm sure lots of listeners have heard about this before. Um, it's this la- the Royal Commission into the Victorian mental health system. And the big sort of piece of information to do with it is the Andrews government have committed to the implementing all the recommendations of the commission once it is completed. So it's super exciting. Um, it's been going for, I think, less than a year and it's, go, it's finishing at the end of next year, but they've released this interim report, even though they're not even halfway through yet, because they've identified these areas that they think require immediate action. Um, so I had a look through the interim report, and it was very interesting, and I thought it'd be a good chance to talk to you, Doolittle, because you've been a psychiatrist for longer than I've been alive. I 315 think. years mm. now, <laughs> and counting. It feels like that some days. <laughs> Um, so it's, it all sounds really exciting to me, but I'm a medical student and everything's exciting to me. So for an experienced person in the profession, do little. Is it exciting? Um, you know, I, the, I think it's super exciting because I think it's the biggest, certainly the biggest review that's gone on since I've been around. And I've really actually been around. I graduated in 88, so whatever that is, 30 30-odd years, 30-plus, and working in the mental health system for nearly all of that. I went into the mental health system straight away. And there's been some huge changes while I've been around. We had deinstitutionalisation where we closed all the big psych hospitals and moved them all to general hospitals. Um, We had uh, the whole move to community care where we basically shut about half our inpatient beds in Victoria and we um, tried to, you know, double, triple our community services. Um, We've had round after round of different things going on. But, you know, the analogy it's always seemed like to me is that we've got this car that was designed in 1950 and the engine's still being wound up at the front and, uh, and we never are prepared to buy a new car and fix it properly. So instead we do a whole lot of other things, like mm. we put on new tyres, like Headspace, that whole thing. I thought Headspace was fantastic and I think new tyres on, on an old car are an amazingly good idea, but it's still not giving us a new engine. And, you know, and every once in a while we paint it a little bit. We, maybe you know, we add this little service and that little stuff and the government seems to love the shiny stuff. You know, let's put on a new windscreen. That's going to be great. But still, the car doesn't work. We can't get patients in. We can't give them adequate follow-up. So I was super excited. And it is exciting that this, the sort of the summary of the whole interim report is that the outcome of this commission is likely to be a redesigned mental health system. And what exactly that means, I think we'll, we've got these interim recommendations and there'll be more recommendations when we get the full report next year, obviously, but it's it's a big deal. And I think it's interesting, Doolittle, you know, you mentioned deinstitutionalisation and the closing down of all these big psych hospitals. And one of the recommendations is actually opening up a big psych hospital. And I wondered if with deinstitutionalisation, maybe we threw the baby out with the bathwater a bit. What well, do you think? Well, I reckon Panelbina and Matu will have thoughts on this because both of you are involved in how care should be designed. And I guess my big fear is, having worked in the place 30 years, I don't, and, and having travelled all over the world pretty much every year to conferences and stuff because I work in the public system, I've never seen a system that's designed so far where people say, ah, finally someone's got it right. Yeah. Yay. Mm. And so I'm worried that we're going to redesign a system without knowledge of what to do. Yeah, I, I reckon it was really interesting. To, um, your metaphor, I reckon, works really well with this. And I think 
from my perspective, I think the political explanation is because that's what that's what works electorally, right? So if if you've got bells and whistles, then the public, the electorate, is happy. And and you know, um, it's that old aphorism, you know, confusing action and movement, you know. Yep. And um, uh, and so I think that's the explanation there is electorally and. And then there, if you're going to be this massive new hospital or new system or something, I, I, I just worry that that's where the emphasis will still be, even mm. if it's completely different, even if it's a completely new system. Mm. Um, I wonder if it's still going to be um, doing the landscaping without doing the house. To introduce another metaphor. Absolutely. I was a expert witness at the Royal Commission for Mental Health. So I... I got an insight to to how it runs and I don't doubt the absolute focus and attention that the people involved have on this space and their desire to do great things for the the mental health of Victoria. The issue will be, from my perspective, is that not all of the right people are going to be in the room to redesign it. And so it's what I call the problem custodians. The people that have had it, the clinicians that have been working in it for a long time, the policy makers that are, it's their bread and butter. They've lived and breathed it for such a long time. Where's the new thinking coming from? And Dr. Doolittle, doing little, uh, <laughs> and I had a, had a chat around um, how do we get people to think differently? And, and one thing we've been talking about at the health lab is how would we design mental health services in space? And by making people think about do you want to take inpatient units to outer space? How are you going to cope with mental health on the space station on Mars. And that will help us redesign how we do it down here on planet because that's the new thinking and in, in, in looking at community resilience. I, um, I presented on how communities can be better places by tackling loneliness and social isolation as one of the root causes of problems in regards to, to people's disconnection. So in redesigning mental health for Victorians, let's hope they involve the entire community and our entire life cycle we experience diseases and a whole range of conditions uh, for our lifetime or for large periods of our, our, our lives, not just in three-year funding cycles, not in one-year funding cycles. True. I was really heartened that one of the key themes identified in the interim report was prevention. And I think um, it sort of touches on what you're talking about, Matu, that, that just helping people once they're ill enough to come to a hospital is only one part of the the equation, that there's all these social and systemic problems that are leading people to be unwell in the first place. And look, how exactly they're going to address those things, I have no idea because it's extremely complicated. But um, it's great that it's there. They're thinking about it. Just another quick comment. I think it's um, significant to underline this interim, the nature of this interim report. Um, conventionally with Royal Commissions, these reports are really just a work-in-progress type document this is much more than a work in progress they're already starting to forecast action um, that's going to be a consequence you know which some might say well it's setting up a house of cards and maybe that's a risk but i actually think now that it's out there um, and the government is saying these things this early at the interim stage we've got a fair chance that this this budget money will be will be so, uh, quarantined and it'll be there for whatever yeah, and the Andrews end. government has committed to this levy, this increase, yeah. this, this tax, um, which we don't know exactly what the details of that are yet, and he probably doesn't either. But um, it sounds like they're committed to increasing funding, and they've got these immediate measures, as I mentioned. And I guess too, you know, when I, I guess the the point I'm making before I say I'm excited, but by the same token, I'm a little bit anxious because there's no great model. In a sense, I'm saying you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And at the end of the day, 
there's one thing we can say pretty much for sure. The system is not working. And so we, we haven't got too much to lose mm. by trying to redesign. And also we can still compare our redesign with the other states because this is a Victorian thing. And, you know, the thing that I'm constantly reminded about is just how difficult it is on the ground if you haven't got private insurance, you know, to be, to be fair. And just last week, you know, one of my best mates um, had some issues with a family member and it was really... It was a good look. I kid you not, and I'm not. I promise I'm not exaggerating. It was a comfortable ten hours on the phone waiting for different services. Um, five hours spent in an emergency department in one particular hospital, sent home with a phone number that didn't really work when they got through. Um, constant worry for seven days, going to sleep every night, wondering about their family member and what was going on. Mm. And that's with me on the phone, working mm. in the system for 30 years, giving advice, and this person really super educated about mental health, having experienced it themselves too. You know, and it's so frustrating. So, you know, I'm, you know, massive hats off to the government for doing something and to the commissioners for the amount, you know, this is a really in-depth process, you know, a couple of years, thousands, I think they, they took about, you know, a few thousand submissions. I've got, I won't bore you with mine, but I chucked in, everyone chucked in one. Um, you know, so it's more hope than we had, put it that way. Just a, it's, a, it's a bigger question than I'm sure we've got time to um, deal with entirely. But um, Doolittle, how influential should the pace of change within psychotherapy um, and psychotherapy services be factored into decisions about big dollar spending? Um, you mentioned you've been in since 88 and... Between 88, it, I imagine it's a completely different sector compared to what you, you've already mentioned a few differences, but even just the way that research is unfolding um, and how that uh, should be delivered. Yep. Do you think that should be a cause for caution in big dollar decisions? Look, it should. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, since 88, because there has been some massive changes. The system is chalk and, you know, mm. it is so much better than it was when I started. And I think we forget that. And I think the other thing that we it's easy to forget when we criticise how bad the system is, is how good the people working in the system are. You know, and I'm not really part of the, you know, I'm in the general hospital system. I work, everyone knows, I work at Peter Mac. Um, so I'm not part of the psych system as such, but I go to the psych system a lot. And it's full of incredibly motivated people doing incredibly yeah. great work but with not enough money, with uh, incredibly hard science. It's really hard to investigate mental health compared to investigating yeah. molecules and drugs in general health. It's just harder. And um, and I've lost track of the question now in all that. I know because I was rambling. I'm sorry. So You're one thing to... there is around technology. So there's a new field called psychoacoustics, for example. When you talk about where's money going to go, so there's not a lot of evidence behind some of the new for example, chatbots in regards to um, uh, coaching people at home to feel better uh, with mental health issues. So there is a risk there. But at the same time, there could be horizons thick with a whole lot of solutions that we haven't even thought about. And psychoacoustics is one of those. That is where you just um, you basically record your voice on a daily um, daily diary and the algorithms work out whether your symptoms are getting worse or not. And it's pretty accurate. So it can diagnose loneliness, anger, yep. incivility, all these things just from voice. It's not your, the words, it's the tone of your voice. It's, so we will see a range of new technologies yep. that may leapfrog us into a better future. I agree with that. And sometimes I go to those you know future seminars and stuff and I've been to lots in different parts of the world and it, some of it does look incredible but again you know all the diagnosis and stuff in the world ain't going to help if um, when you go to knock on the door the door doesn't open for five hours and when it does open they say we're too busy um, and uh, but you know the, the, certainly the improvements in science and the improvements in what we've got and this you know the changes to psychotherapy the changes to a better understanding of medications and their limitations 
30 years ago, it was medications, 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 <laughs> medications. We can't afford anything else. Now it's like 50-50 and the limitations of medications have been discovered and people are looking more. I get a little bit scared, though, on your point, Matu, that, um, you know, well-being is such a huge concept in, in our country and a lot and well-being is on this massive spectrum some, from absolutely no bloody evidence whatsoever and full-on charlatans right through to moderate evidence uh, and really great things, especially in the areas, you know, for example, say nutrition. You know, we've got lots of great evidence now around nutrition. But I'm, and that, com- so that well-being movement combined with a little bit of l- loss of the expert mm-hmm. in that sometimes the expert's voice is lost now and so mm-hmm. you can have whole committees without one person who's actually an expert. You'd never do that in general medicine. You wouldn't review orthopaedic yeah. surgery without having an orthopaedic surgeon on the committee. Mm-hmm. So as long as we get the balance right, then, then I'll remain optimistic. Any final comments from you on this particular one, Trainer Wheels? Um, what do you reckon as a med student? Are you excited? I am very excited, particularly when I think about future career prospects, whether I end up going into mental health or primary care or whatever. I think it's really exciting that I'm going to be part of this generation of young doctors in um, a system that's changing and improving and innovating. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Um, but now let me formally introduce Matu Bush. So Matu is the Deputy Director of the Health Transformation Lab at RMIT, designing towards cultures of innovation and creativity in healthcare. Matu has a master's degree in public health and a broad clinical manager and managerial and nursing experience, including working in Tijuana, Mexico, with Nobel Prize laureate Mother Teresa. I picked that bit out of your bio on purpose because <laughs> it just sounded so interesting and I couldn't resist. In International Border Aid. And as an emergency oncology intensive care nurse and as a sexual health nurse practitioner. Matu, as I mentioned at the start, he's also founder of One Good Street, a social networking platform to encourage neighbour-initiated care for older residents at risk of social isolation and, lo- and loneliness. So g'day again, Matu. Awesome to be here. Um, that is a, you know, a, a varied career path you've had. Indeed. I, often people ask me what it was like working with Mother Teresa, and I have to say it's like Margaret Thatcher and Asari. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Tell she us was more. tough. She was tough. Because that's what you know. That's what you always hear about Mother Teresa. It, you know, you hear all the amazing things, and then yes. always people come in with stuff afterwards about you know her treatment of the poor and her Correct. carrying on um, models of social care that Correct. maybe aren't as great as people. You know, so I, I'm never quite sure. Look, so you it's met- a combination. So I worked with her four and a half years. I remember I, I was studying design in Sydney, and I wrote her a letter when I was 19 because the Somalian famine was happening at the same time so I'd come home and, and see all these starving kids on TV and then I'd be doing design at, at, at night school and uh, so I, I found this book I read it uh, I wrote her a letter she wrote back said come and work with me in, in Calcutta so I did won my ticket 19 years of age went to India and started working with her met her many many times had breakfast with her talked to her and um, look I was in a privileged position to stand behind someone who was a world leader and see the pantomime and see how she could walk into a room and how 3,000 people would project all of their emotions on her and then people would say, oh, she's got an aura. No, that's all the energy you're pushing onto this poor woman who was sort of 83 and exhausted. Uh, She was pretty mechanical 
uh, by the end of it. So she was just going through the motions and saying the same old things. Um, uh, and so we'd remind her, say, Mother, you've already told that story. Tell another one. And uh, yes, the, the interesting thing about her is the model of care. She took one model of care that worked in Calcutta and replicated it around the world. Yep. And that's where I came unstuck with her because I started to challenge that. I was in Tijuana, Mexico. They were, uh, there was a home for the dying. And it's like, why are these people dying? There's, there's plenty of medical clinics up the road. They need antibiotics. And I know you've got 50,000. Actually, she had $50 million in a bank account in New York. And she's not buying antibiotics or analgesia because she used the poor people as the raw material for her philosophy. <gasps> oh, my mm. God. Yeah. And I that's not okay anymore. I take it you've read uh, Christopher Hitchens' yes, uh, book. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And it rings true that, that we, regardless of any cause, mental health, Indigenous health, the people affected are not the, to be used as the raw materials for our, our platform, our expression, our philosophy. They, we de- dispossess them of choice. And one of the first things is, from a design ethics point of view, is provide really good quality choices for people. That's why people ask me, are you a change maker? No, I'm not a change maker because change maker needs consent. What I do is provide choices for people. And Mother Teresa didn't provide choices, so we can confidently say she was unethical. Can I ask you on that? You know, I often see, whenever I've met any people who are great leaders too, they're normally incredibly single-minded, rigid, and they've got, an, they've got one good idea that they just push so beautifully. And then you meet a whole lot of people who are in senior positions who can see the grey, who everything's tricky and there's lots of decisions, and they tend to wax and wane a bit, and they don't get the support behind them because they don't walk into the room and say, shut up, everyone, I've got the answer, <laughs> follow me. And they walk in and say, oh, hi, everyone, let's think of these nine choices. And everyone goes... You know, and they follow the. Per- and I'm I'm a grayscale person, definitely. But that's what I, you know. I think great. You know, you almost have to be rigid and true, throat. true. And she was like that. And uh, and people get behind it. And and I think that's our frontal lobes and our our cortexes need to evolve a bit so that we're not so messianic in our um, in our aspirations where we see one person that leadership model that's going to take us through. Look, she did amazing things. I fed six thousand people in one day with her on the streets of Calcutta Christmas Day. And uh, and she was someone who always started small and just kept going. So for example, in our suburbs uh, in Kent. Kensington, Flemington, North Melbourne, we, we run aircon clubs. So if it's 38 degrees, you open up your house and host your older neighbours so that they don't get affected by heat, so they don't end up in emergency departments or visiting their GPs. Yep. And uh, and so taking that, uh, the good stuff from Mother Teresa in the grayscale, um, she, just, she would just start. So I just started and the first thing that came to the aircon club was a rabbit. And then slowly <laughs> it, it evolved and now there's some older people. So I was running mixed species aircon clubs. <laughs> Um, and, and it's just starting, starting small um, and, and managing the risk and, uh, and being brave. And when you talked about sort of creative creativity in healthcare, there's kind of elements to, to creativity that we're yet to really articulate, especially in healthcare, that there is creative bravery needed and there's creative leadership, just like there's design leadership. So there's components of, of creativity that can really improve healthcare systems. So tell us about the um, RMIT uh, Health Transformation Lab. Brilliant. So it's co-funded by Cisco. What we wanted was a place where people who think differently could hang out. So in the um, in the UK and in the US, if you said, I want to do health transformation, you'd know where to go. 
because there are dedicated centres like the MIT Media Lab. There's all these great places. In Australia, there's not a specific place. So we knew we had to create a space. And we had to create a space for hybrids, for really unusual clinicians uh, and designers who, are, who have been an architect, who have done design anthropology, who are interested in health. Uh, we've met chefs who, who now do design thinking and are interested in healthcare. So for people who are unusual, for all of those clinicians who don't fit in, who don't want to be researchers and, uh, and certainly don't want to be academics, this is the place for you. Come and design in this place. So that's what it's for. And in, in doing so, we have a whole lot of new activity. So someone like yourself, Training Wheels, would be perfect to come and join us. Oh, is that right? Well, thank you very much. There you go. Job so what does that mean for research uh, and evidence-based design? If, if, the, if that's the fork in the road, if that's the distinguishing feature... Mm-hmm where's the evidence coming from for the design decisions? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. We've installed digital wallpaper, so it's fully interactive wallpaper, and we put it in dementia units. So have we got an evidence base that it's successful? No. Do we have an experience base? That's what we have. So we're developing this experience base where we get anecdotal stories. We look at just case reviews of, of 10 residents and say, hey, guess what? In, since we've put in this digital wallpaper, there's been less chemical restraint there's been less escalation of, of, of behaviours of concern for people with dementia. And then we look at the phenomena of having dementia in an aged care facility. We look at the phenomenology of, of, of care in those places and we see a change in the choreography. So we see nurses and care workers not clustering people around TVs. And that's what we do is create this experience base, base to give it more runway so that then the researchers can come in after that. And when you're... In this situation, that sounds like it's been really exciting in this instance. How do you scale it then if your evidence is mostly anecdotal? How do you go about scaling things? Bit of a Trojan horse. So we look at publishing it eventually and uh, and building this coalition, this participation culture within aged care that's open to more technology and, and, and more creative solutions. So, for example, we had a, a, um, a PhD student who's developed a drone that you can do Tai Chi with. And straight away we see the potential of doing physiotherapy with this drone. And so our job at the Health Transformation Lab is not to prove specifically that thing is effective, but to create cultures of participation where large uh, groups in healthcare are more and more open to that, more porous to a whole lot of technology. Because a single solution like a drone that teaches you how to, do, how to dance or do physiotherapy is not enough. It's, it's a cluster, it's a program of technology that needs to come in and transform the way we care how we care and why we care. Why don't let's um, maybe take some examples. So you've mentioned the drone, you've mentioned the wallpaper, um, or you know, pick any other one. What, what? Give us an example of something that's um, been done recently. Brilliant. I think one of the most exciting things we're doing is is uh, with Australia Post and thinking with them, in in partnership with them, how they evolve to support the health and well-being of Australians. Yep. So this is this idea of adjacency. We can't do it all in healthcare. And, for example, in mental health, you can't do it all. You don't have the resources. We're, we're millions of nurses short. We're, we're going to be millions and millions of care workers short soon. soon. So, therefore, we can't do it all. The, uh, this idea of building this coalition, this partnership with a range of people that, and organisations that work adjacent to health, and can they repurpose what they already have, all of their assets, to support uh, support the well-being of the community. So I'll give you an example of that is um, putting defib machines on um, on a whole lot of couriers or uh, Australia Post or, um, or or any vehicle that's out there, police, etc. Defib machines so that they become an extension of Ambulance Victoria. 
So therefore you get more lives saved because more people have defib machines and, uh, and they can do their work. It's like Coles delivery workers, for example, putting defib machines in, in the Coles delivery van. Then they become an extension of Australia Post. Uh, uh, sorry. You uh, go, you go. I imagine there's going to be huge pushback on that from the respective peak bodies and associations. Not necessarily because they're not sympathetic to the idea that um, want easy access to the technology that's um, available and managing logistics by having the machines on various vehicles mm-hmm. makes sense. I imagine the pushback is about um, ownership of expertise and quality control of services and so on. Is is that a sense that you're experiencing? Sure. We, we, we acknowledge that from the very beginning. I think corporate Australia now is evolving. So they are evolving their vision statements for their businesses. So you'll go to, a, for example, a utilities company that's changed its motto and now it's make life better, which includes healthcare. So it is rare now that you will meet a company, a very large national company that's not thinking about healthcare and well-being, if not for their staff. So some staff, for example, uh, Bunnings, their average uh, age of their staff are 55. So therefore, they have to think about the well-being and the pre- pre-retirement of their staff. So most major organisations in this country are thinking about health and well-being, about their staff, or about evolving their service offering, because they can't be specialists anymore. You can't be specialists delivering X. You've got to have a range of business, uh, business offerings and service offerings because there is money to be made in health. Did you have a question, Trainer Wills? I do, yeah. I was wondering, with this idea you have of putting DFib machines on mm-hmm. couriers and Auspost bikes and all that sort of stuff, what do you think the consequences are of kind of outsourcing healthcare from the kind of traditional sources of healthcare providers in terms of what that means for from a government funding perspective? If the government then doesn't have to... Um, dedicate as much funding to hospitals because Australia Post will take care of it, mm. for example. So the, all of those companies that get involved in healthcare, and it can be anything from, or, or, for example, Rotary. Imagine you write a discharge letter to a GP, but you also discharge to Rotary, and then Rotary form a circle around someone who's 85 and, and looks after them in the community. So somebody has to pay it in the end, and so all of these people getting involved and all these companies getting involved will expect to get paid. So therefore, it's about how that money flows because they're doing the work and who values that work. So for example, there are hospitals today, it's Sunday, who can't discharge older people because they, these older people have nowhere to go to. They're called the Sunday Roasters. They spend all day in hospital and have to wait till Monday to be discharged because there's no volunteer services. But if we established a, a, um, a, a process where somebody, Rotary, Ozpost, who knows, anyone, picks them up, takes them home, gets their meds, preps their house, gets them food, settles them in, that work is valuable. And the hospital may pay for that because it actually improves their emergency department times, waiting times, because they have more uh, beds up on the ward. So somebody will value that and somebody has to pay for that. None of this work is going to be done for free. So how do you form the relationships? Like you mentioned Australia Post, Cisco, I don't know who that is, but you know, how do you form these relationships? Do you go out to them or do they come to you or is it some magical mix? It's a combination. It's a combination. But it's, it's painting a panel panorama of what's possible in healthcare. And when people hear that, they think, actually, I want to get involved in that because we've been going to conferences and there's just been educated guessery from consultancy companies about the future of healthcare. So when we talk about the future of healthcare in ways that are concrete, tangible, people want to get involved. There is no shortage of, of energy in corporate Australia and in the community sector to improve the well-being of Australians. And we're just tapping into that. A lot of that activity is happening, but it's disaggregated and disorganised. Now we've given it a home in the lab.
Um, I'm really curious about something I caught on your website, um, right on under the About Us stuff. It refers to wicked problems. That's a, Wicked problems a concept that I've dealt with quite a bit in international development and global poverty. I wonder how you formulate an understanding of wicked problems mm-hmm. for, for the lab. Yeah, indeed. So if someone comes to us with something that's really intractable and where we where not a single solution is going to solve it and that it exists within an ecosystem, a problem ecosystem that has multiple players, multiple funding streams and is controversial and is difficult, then then I think that fits nicely the, the uh, definition of wicked problems. Yeah, we should per- perhaps check in there. My uh, my use of wicked problems, so it's worth checking whether it is the same. Wicked problems um, is many different things, but perhaps its main feature is that usually in the solution of one problem, you create other problems. Correct. Right? And, and so are you seeing that the, the solutions that you're looking for for the problems that you're identifying are creating other problems? Absolutely. We expect it. And it's not even unattending. We don't use the term unattending consequences. Just, there's just a whole lot of consequences. So our methodology, we're a cybernetics lab. We're based on cybernetics, which comes from 1942, and it's all about using all kinds of disciplines, so design, but as well as engineering, robotics, as well as philosophy, ethics, epistemology. So it has all the classics as well. Uh, So we use that lens and we map problem ecosystems. So we've done this for loneliness and isolation. And when you map the entire problem ecosystem, you get an oversight of all the areas and all the unattended consequences that come with it. But our job is to provocate in those spaces. So, in the last few minutes, I just want to, you know, where do you see us in 30 years' time? If you mentioned earlier a space lab or, you know, yes. if you were setting up health services on Mars, how, can you give us some broad brushstrokes on how Absolutely. they might look different to today? Absolutely. I believe we'll be far more interested in relational health. And so when you assess somebody, you're going to assess for their relational health, which is linked to their community. So we'll have a much more bigger focus on relationships and the interplay that people have between their own ecosystems as well as the healthcare ecosystem. We have to provocate. In two years' time, Melbourne Uni will be sending cancer cells to the space station. That's in two years' time because cancer cells behave differently in zero gravity. So within 50, 60 years, we could imagine sending rehab in space. You could be doing rehab in zero gravity environments. There could be conditions that that recover better off-planet. So we have to start thinking about off-planet models of care. Another uh, uh, interesting one is the male contraceptive pill. In nine years' time, on the market will be a non-hormonal male contraceptive pill. So we have to start preparing Australia for that because we have no cultural artefacts that show a dad telling the son about the, uh, the pill or mates talking about the, the male contraceptive pill. So there's going to be new technology coming, which means we have to have uh, a new ways of communicating that, such as the male contraceptive pill. But then we need new models that are completely different. Nobody wants to take an outpatient department to the moon. No. <laughs> waiting lists. Hey, it all sounds incredibly exciting. I love hearing about this stuff, Matu, and, over, and we very much appreciate you coming in on your Sunday morning to tell us. I encourage everyone to jump onto their website and check it out. What is your website? Just remind us. So Health Transformation Lab, RMIT. If you check that out, you'll find us. And also um, check out One Good Street, uh, which is the Neighbourhood Initiated Care uh, Project in North Melbourne, Kensington and Flemington. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. 
We've been chatting about lots of things, but we're rounding out this segment for this particular show for the year with Panelbeater's regular theme that he's been following all year on self-help and how it intersects and overlaps with various other concepts in the healthcare industry. And today he's taking a look, look at the fascinating area of New Year's resolutions as a self-help concept and how that compares and contrasts with other resolutions we might make at other times in our life, like significant life events like getting married or getting a serious illness. Mm. So, panel beater, yeah, launches, launches. <laughs> You're a rocket going up to space, like what you were talking about. Yeah. Launches, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, coming to the end of the year, and we're all going through the silly season, and inevitably, a great many people make resolutions. You know, extraordinary. You know, I tried to find out if there's any um, research on the number of people who make resolutions, but it's it's a very high proportion. Similarly, there's a very high proportion of people who don't keep them. Mm. Um, it seems like about 80% of news resolutions have failed by February. Wow. Um, anyway, so thinking about this uh, news resolutions coming up and, and thinking about this idea of self-help um, points us to the fact that the self-help industry loves New Year. Um, because, you know, book sales for one around Christmas and so on, but also people, when they're making news resolutions, okay, I've decided a new diet or I'm going to do some exercise and I'm going to change some life routines or something. So they go and buy a book to support that, right? Um, and so one of the consistent things that we've discussed about self-help during um, the year is why do people turn to self-help, a book um, or a video or whatever it might be, um, and why would they do that rather than go and seeing a health professional? Okay, so if you're going to um, start an exercise routine, you know, medical advice is that certainly if you're over a certain age, but if you're already overweight or whatever, you should seek medical advice before you start a new exercise routine or something like this. So we've got that relationship. We can do a compare contrast between those things. Um, and noticing that the news resolutions are usually very health related. I mean, they're not always. Sometimes they're financial related or, or something of that nature. But they are about um, exercise or diet or um, giving up something, giving up the grog, giving up cigarettes, whatever it might be. Um, so I then thought about what's what do they have in common? What do New Year's resolutions have in common with resolutions that are made at other times in our lives? Um, and what is different. So just very quickly on um, what they have is similar. They're similar because they are lifestyle related and generally health related. Um, they're scalable, you know, so somebody says, oh, I'm going to um, cut back on my drinking. Some people say I'm going to give up, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's a defined time period, right? You know, you, you set it out. Now, in contrast, with medical advised resolutions and um, i'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say i've got a couple of choice questions for you but we might make some distinctions when the doctors get involved by the fact that now it's not voluntary right because the doctor's saying hey um you're overweight you need to do xyz or you know for your mental health these are some things you might like to consider medication even you know whatever um the resolutions that you might have to make under doctor's advice might be forever, might be for the rest of your life, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, um, and especially if you are, say, going through a terminal illness, you know, things that you might need to make. Um, and, and and obviously, if, it, if doctors are involved or medical professions are involved, it is medically supported. So unlike a lot of self-help, which aren't necessarily evidence-based, they might be celebrity <laughs> driven yeah. Yeah. Um, the the resolutions that people have to make um, under medical advice you would <laughs> you would hope at least um, uh, evidence-based 
Um, if you have a voluntary resolution, um, I'm going to give up the grog, um, that's a very different situation than being diagnosed with a liver condition where you have to give it up and the consequence of failing to give it up are really significant. You know, so if in February you're back on the grog and it was a voluntary decision, less consequences than if the doctor said you have to give it up. Mm. Um, and we've got a success rate difference. So I've just mentioned that in in self-help or in news resolutions, 80% failure rate by February. Um, uh, and... I couldn't quite find, I mean, because there's so many different ways you can measure it, what the failure rate is for people who, say, are told by doctors to give up the grog. How many don't? You know, I don't know why I keep thinking about giving up the grog. But Are you trying anyway. to tell us something? Yeah. Well, it's, I think it was because when I was looking into it, it was, it was, the, um, it was the one that just kept popping up as a New Year's resolution. It's always, you know, and they've got Feb Fast, you know, mm-hmm. and comes in. Um, anyway, so, um, and, and then, okay, now what... what is the advice that self-help gives and is there anything about the self-help advice that is distinct or contradictory to what medical advice would be, expert advice? So the most common pieces of self-help advice, advice are be realistic, you know, in your scale. Don't say that you're going to lose 50 kilos. Um, you know, the self-help advice is say you're going to lose 10 and once you've lost 10, then set it again and lose another 10 or, or whatever it is. Um Self-help advice for, you know, most of it, whatever other flaws it has, it often does say go and seek medical advice. You know, um, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, Doolittle, your book last year, I was looking on the, in, the, in the preface or certainly in the early stages, it, it makes a very clear point. This isn't medical advice. This is information you should seek. Yep. You should seek um, professional advice before. Yeah, that's one. always interesting in books, you know, how because when you write a book as a doctor, in the book you're talking about, just in case anyone says, still <laughs> mental, mental, everything you ever you never knew you needed to know about Available mental health. Available at all, <laughs> <stores. Yeah. laughs> Is it Christmas coming up? Um, uh, you know, you always worry about that because it is very different. You know, you are giving information. You're not giving advice, even though we write it like advice. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so it's confusing to the person. And no one reads those intros. So, no, you no. know. Um, and, um, uh, and the other piece of advice in self-help is often about make it about yourself. Don't make it about somebody else. So if you're trying to lose weight because you want greater social accept- acceptance, the likelihood of failure is much higher than trying to lose weight because it's something you want to do. That's a, a, a conventional self-help um, advice. Um and it, uh, self-help advice is usually about make sure you start to enjoy the process, not just your objective. So it's no use saying I'm going to go to the gym and lose weight if you don't like going to the gym. Mm. You know, find something that you like to do. Um, and uh, motivation is often best thought of as a skill rather than as a fuel. You know, that's the self-help advice. So train yourself to work out what your triggers are. What's your trigger to go to the gym if going to the gym is your thing? And then finally, that you should do it collaboratively, mm-hmm. right? You should. Oh, there's Matu's point. Yeah, it's right. Loneliness, social you should, connection. You should have some, you know, you should have an exercise buddy or, or whatever it might be. So there's a little synopsis. Now, with the last couple of minutes that we've got left, I'm really keen to um, find out from you guys, from your, your work-based um, experience, um, uh, a couple of things. If I could start with you, training wheels. Sure. So you're a recent mum. I am. It's, although not that recent anymore. Well, it's not. <laughs> okay. Um, you're certainly more recently a mum than any of the rest of us. That's true, <laughs> yes. Um, so in self-help, pregnancy 
is a massive section, subgenre of mm-hmm. self-help. You know, mm-hmm. what to expect when you're expecting was a huge book. And yeah. Cover to cover. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we've had Kaz Cook on a few times mm. and things like that, right? So my question to you is, A, did you use anything self-helpy? And B, if you did, did you then take anything you read or heard or whatever to a health professional to check it out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually read What to Expect When You're Expecting. Uh-huh. It's a good book. Uh, it's been revised lots of times. It's got input from obstetricians and experts, and that's why I read it because it's it's got a good evidence base for the most part. Um, and I didn't take oh yeah individual things I would speak to my GP or obstetrician about if I had questions and I also just from my own experience was able to fact check you know research stuff that seemed a bit dodgy to me or whatever Um, so I guess that's how I kind of got around that and I think it's interesting that pregnancy is such a big time for self-help and it it gets to what you're talking about with motivation right and and you know you said that the self-help kind of vibe is that you should make it about yourself and not someone else but in pregnancy it's all about it's all about about someone else for sure and but also there's so much guilt and shame put on pregnant women and mothers um and that's a huge motivator (laughs) yeah yeah and and when i was thinking about uh, pregnancy as maybe the exception to that um thing i then started thinking about public health campaigns and they've of course there's a variety of types but recently um cigarette smoking advertising is often you know a dad who runs out of breath while playing Mm -hmm. with the kids yeah and and you know so it's like give up smoking for your kids yeah and i wonder how effective that is i reckon it would be pretty effective i guess so yeah there was the tac drunk driving drink driving ads that used a different the work cover ones it's about somebody else Mm -hmm. do little Mm-hmm. Working um, in a hospital-based psychiatric care, you must uh, come across a whole lot of people who are under doctor's orders to do something. Yep. Um, do you do you have a sense that the way that they organise their resolution is different than how a well person, you know, well, quote-unquote, person would handle resolutions? Yeah, absolutely. It strikes me that the New Year's resolution is, you know, the way we test our resolve and we see what we're like over the years. And am I good at this? And what's my willpower like? That I guess shit gets real when you get um, when you get the illness. Because I've, you know, worked in general hospitals 30 years. So I've worked in everything, HIV, burns, lots of minor illnesses, you know, everything from appendicitis, appendicitis through to whatever you can imagine, infectious diseases. And these days I do cancer. Now, cancer is the, you know, in really it's, it's the... It's the, it's the king, the queen of all the illnesses. It's the one that motivates people more than anything. And you know what really came to mind when you were talking about this was, you know, this concept that so many people rearrange... People who've survived cancer so often say... Um, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it rearranged my whole life. And they always do the basic resolutions. Every one of them eats better, quits smoking. Not you know, some people fail, but way less failure rate than New Year's resolutions. Um, and they you know exercise and stuff. But the other thing they do resolution wise is they reevaluate what's important in their life. Mm. So many of them say, I, you know, it's amazing. Mm. I just don't give a shit anymore whether my neighbours are annoying me. I now focus on spending time with my mother before mm. she passes away. And so they rearrange. So, and it's just like, it, it, you know, they've tested themselves over the years, but all of a sudden there's this massive mountain of motivation coming in, not only about the illness, but about how do I want to spend the rest of the time that I have on earth? Because all of a sudden, mm-hmm. mortality is a real concept for me, and it's not some random concept that, oh, everyone dies. Oh, but not me, because I'm only 
40. Time limited. So, so is the lesson out of that that we should, you know, um, well, we touched on stoicism the other day, you know, should we all walk around with memento moris, you know, you know which is like the, the skull and crossbones, mm. to remind ourselves of mortality? Is mortality the motivator? What I wanted to say before you talked about the dichotomy being between voluntary and involuntary resolutions, and I think actually they're always voluntary, right? Because at the end of the day, you can just pick up your cigarettes and start smoking again, no matter what how serious the consequences are. If the motivation isn't there for you or whatever, it's always up to you at the end of the day. And I think what it comes down to in these medically you know, in the medical situation is having a good relationship with your patient and collaborating and coming up with solutions that work together and and all that sort of stuff. Awesome, guys. Hey, um, we have just a minute or two to go. So thank you very much for the rounding up self-help segment for the year. It's given us all something to think about. And I think we can just also prepare our resolutions with a little bit more forethought this year. (laughs) I'm going to give up alcohol. No, never. Hey, uh, so let's do a few thank yous for the end of the year. Um, Even though, of course, I don't want you to forget that our last big radiotherapy show for the year is next year, where we're going to do a bit of a roundup of all sorts of things, and Panelbeat is going to be uh, running the whole um, shebang. But let's do a bit of a thank you from this little mini queue, our little mini crew, I should say, not queue. Firstly, big thanks, obviously, to Triple R for continuing to put radiotherapy on again this year. And we had another fantastic year and enjoyed it so much. And we love being part of the community for Triple R. And just in case you've forgotten, please subscribe. All the panellists that we have on the year, Panel Beater, Trainer Wheels, Capri, um, Cyber Sue, everyone else. Of course, all of our guests like Matu, who I'll also thank in a second. Um, of course, the biggest thanks goes to our listeners for tuning in and for engaging with us and giving us so many good ideas and, and uh, you know, being part of this family that's been going on for over 20 years. And on that note, can I remind you about our social media? We'll keep that going over summer as much as we can. We're on um, on Facebook, Radiotherapy, on Triple R. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Um, it's been a blast of a year as usual and uh, I can't express how much appreciation we've got for everyone and for the whole shebang. Um, crew, big thanks to you too, Doolittle, for keeping us in order. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.